Take your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our way through it. Matthew chapter 16. And this morning we're going to read from verses 13 through verse 17 of Matthew chapter 16. Let's go ahead and pray before we turn there to Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Even as we've sung in prayer, so now we pray, our Lord, show us Christ. All of the words which speak over the next half hour mean nothing if you don't show us Christ. Would you reveal yourself to us, so your eternal truths upon our hearts, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read this morning from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Though the grass withers, And the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. When we get to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we kind of hit a crescendo, if you will. This is many, what many scholars think is the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Everything here kind of changes. And it's true in some of the other Gospels as well. This is the key turning point where Jesus' message changes and His very ministry changes as He sets Himself towards Jerusalem and we go towards His crucifixion and His death and His burial and then His resurrection. And you can see that here. If you go down to verse 21, immediately after this passage, We read, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. This morning, as we look at our passage together, I want to look at it in four ways this morning. I want to first look at the context, and then I want to look at the great question, then I want to look at the greater question and then look at the greatest and only answer. So first, the context. The context here is incredibly important. It shouldn't be lost on us. We're in the 21st century, and so it's pretty easy to, to lose the context of where we're at and, and what is happening. And the context is very important here. 
If I said that someone was standing on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., and they were about to make a statement about their candidacy for a certain position, you wouldn't have to ask what that position is. You would know. If someone says that they were headed to the Bahamas, you wouldn't ask the question, do you have business there? Or you wouldn't say, oh, do you have relatives that live there? You, you know why they're headed to the Bahamas. You know the context, the place matters, the place has meaning for us. Well, it's very similar in this text. This is a famous scene here at Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was well known. It was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was in Gentile territory. Just a, a few miles north of the city was that great Mount Hermon with its snow-capped peaks that would have dominated the area. And it was here from that region of Caesarea Philippi that the headwaters of the Jordan River flowed in ancient times. And so it was a lush area. It was green. It was fervent. In fact, nature was worshipped there. The ancient Canaanites built a sanctuary to Baal as a sign of their worshipping of nature there in this lush area. Caesarea Philippi had another name before it had that name. It had the name of Pania. In the ancient world, this is the name that you often see this area labeled as, Pania or Paneus, and that name came from the Greek god Pan. The Greeks moved to the area, they dedicated that region to Pan. Pan was a pagan Greek god who was believed to be the son of Hermes. He had a, a human upper body and torso, and he had goat legs. And he was believed to have been born there in that region of Caesarea Philippi. There was a cave, a cave that you can still see today that has a, a deep, deep cavern in it. And in the bottom of that is a, a what seemed like a bottomless pit to the ancients. And they believed that the god Pan had been born in that deep cavern in that pit, and the Jordan River flowed from that, and so they named that area Paneus. And Pan was a fortune teller. He was one that revealed mysteries, and so people would go before this cave, and they would cry out to Pan, and they would ask him what they should do or what they should believe. This region was given as a gift during Roman times to Herod the Great, and it was given to him by none other than Caesar Augustus. And so Herod the Great had a great white sanctuary built there in front of that cave and dedicated it to Caesar Augustus. And so it's there that the Caesars were worshipped. This was an area that was known throughout the ancient world. Here you have the worship of pagan gods. 
all kinds of pagan gods. You have man's achievement celebrated. You have nature itself worshipped. You have the emperor worshipped. Caesarea Philippi was a kind of monument to pluralism, a kind of capital of syncretism in religion, a true multi-faith capital for the pagan world. We often think that pluralism and multi-faith efforts are, are new to our age. It's so modern to be pluralistic. It's so modern to be relativistic. It's so modern to be syncretistic. And nothing could be further from the truth. The second oldest religion in the world is a pluralistic, syncretistic kind of religion. And we see it here. That's the context. We're at this crossroads of worldly, man-made, man-crafted religion. And it's here that Jesus chooses to bring the utmost clarity to the hearts and minds of His disciples about who He is. That's the context. So second, let us see the great question. Jesus asks the great question in that context. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's an amazing scene. The Son of Man is Jesus. It's His favorite self-designation. He takes it from Daniel 7. This is how He often refers to Himself. And He's asking them, who am I? They've been following him for two and a half years. And now the fundamental question is before them. Who am I? Who do other people say that you're actually following, that you gave up everything to follow? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples give three opinions. Like the different options of who to worship there at Caesarea Philippi. So there are differing opinions about who Jesus is. The first they give is, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Remember that Herod had this view. He thought that Jesus was quite possibly John the Baptist, come back from the dead. John the Baptist was well thought of. And here's Jesus doing mighty miracles. How does he have the ability to do these mighty miracles? Maybe it's because he has resurrection power. He came back from the dead. They say, well, there are some others. I believe you're Elijah, come down from heaven. Elijah, that great prophet who was to come before the Messiah, came into the world and to prepare the way for him. Maybe that's who Jesus is. Third, they say, well, some others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Why Jeremiah? I, I don't completely know. But maybe it's because Jesus prophesied destruction. And he prophesied judgment, and so did Jeremiah, a kind of weeping prophet. And those are all fine thoughts about Jesus. They're all kind things, nothing rude here. It's even honoring, but they aren't sufficient. This is where many are at today when they think about Jesus. Maybe not some prophet, but something pleasant. 
If you ask the average person who they think Jesus was, they will usually have something kind to say about Jesus. He's a pretty popular fellow. Vincent van Gogh, this is true throughout history, Vincent van Gogh said, Jesus lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists. He called him, quote, a matchless artist. That's high praise from an artist. Mikhail Gorbachev, the former president of the Soviet Union, said, quote, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Whether that's true or not, that's a kind word from a socialist. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the famous transcendentalist and philosopher, said, quote, Jesus Christ belonged to the true race of prophets. He saw with open eye the mystery of the soul, drawn from its severe harmony, ravished with its beauty. He lived in it and had his being there alone in all history. He estimated the greatness of man. Pretty kind from a transcendentalist. Thomas Jefferson, a great communicator, president, a man so brilliant that John F. Kennedy, one time when he had a dining room full of Nobel Prize winners, said to them, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge that has ever been gathered at the White House with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Is this Thomas Jefferson, that brilliant man that said this, quote, I hold the precepts of Jesus as delivered by himself to be the most pure, benevolent, and sublime which have ever been preached by a man. Pretty kind words from a brilliant man like Thomas Jefferson. So many kind accolades laid at the feet of Jesus, but none of them is enough. None of these are sufficient. You know, it really doesn't matter ultimately what others think of Jesus. It doesn't matter what Thomas Jefferson thought of Jesus doesn't matter what Ralph Waldo Emerson thought of Jesus. It doesn't matter what your Sunday school teacher thinks of Jesus. In an ultimate sense, it doesn't really matter, kids, what your parents think of Jesus. There are only two opinions that matter. What Jesus thinks of himself. And hear this very clearly, what you think of Jesus, what you, a child sitting at home right now, think of Jesus, whether you're four or you're eight or you're 12, whether you're 21 or 30 or 41 or 81, what do you think of Jesus? What matters is what Jesus asked his disciples, the same question he asks of us. The greater question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
especially in a context like ours where there are so many options, so many possibilities laid out before us, who do you say that Jesus is? Peter's ready. As always, I love Peter. He has a ready answer. He was the first disciple called by Jesus, as Matthew tells us in his gospel, and now he's the first disciple to boldly confess his faith in Jesus. And he says wonderfully in verse 15, the greatest and only answer to that question. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus. It's from the heart that Peter exclaims this, the greatest and only answer to the, the greater question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's from a heart that has been stirred by grace, a heart that has been gripped by faith. And from that heart, he speaks with his mouth what he believes, you are the Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, and here is saving faith. Now listen, Peter had heard this truth before. He'd heard it before. Faith comes from hearing. But now he believes it this whole being. It should remind you, the confession that he makes, it should remind you of something you've already heard in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, in that, that wonderful scene where Jesus is going into the waters of baptism and John the Baptist is baptizing him. And we have the Spirit come down upon Jesus like a dove, and it settles upon Him. It anoints Him. He, he, in that moment, is the anointed one, which is what Christ means, which is what Messiah means. And as the anointed one, as the waters of baptism are poured upon his head, and as he emerges from those waters of baptism, then a voice resounds from heaven. The voice of the Father, the living God who speaks. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The anointed one, the Christ. This is my Son. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter confesses. The disciples had heard it, but now they actually believe it. Why? Why now? Maybe we can think about it like right now everybody is walking around with these masks over their faces. We could say, well, in that moment, there's an 
unmasking here in this text. Mask is removed. Now, we're prone to think that the mask is removed from Jesus, that Jesus was somehow masked. We think of it like, maybe like Clark Kent taking off his glasses, and all of a sudden you go, oh, 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 that's Superman. That's who that is. Jesus somehow removed a mask, and then, ah, oh, you're the Christ. But that's not what happens. Jesus doesn't change from the moment before Peter's confession to the moment of Peter's confession or to the moment after Peter's confession. He's the same Christ. The mask wasn't removed from Jesus. It was removed from Peter. That's what changed. The Scriptures refer to it in different ways. It speaks about the hardness of our hearts. Or it speaks of ignorance, or it speaks of blindness, or it speaks of darkness, or it speaks of deadness. But then the mask is removed, and Peter sees, and he believes, and he receives Jesus, and he trusts in Him. That's saving faith. It's an act of the soul. It's an act of our soul, an act whereby we receive Christ as our mediator, as our Lord, as our Savior. It's saving faith. And it's an act of our entire person. This is not theoretical knowledge for Peter. This is something that Peter is experiencing. He has been convicted of his own sin and his own misery, and he believes the promises of God, and he believes that Jesus is this promised Messiah that would come into the world, and he believes that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And he receives him. It's so simple. A child can do it. And yet, it is so impossible that the smartest of men can't self-achieve it. So how? How does Peter believe? Peter didn't remove the mask. He didn't unfreeze his own heart. He didn't all of a sudden reach some kind of self-achieved greater knowledge. How does it happen? was revealed to him. So Jesus says, verse 17, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, flesh and blood, meaning there is nothing in the human sphere, nothing in your humanity, Peter. You didn't secure this. The Father revealed it to you. This was a work of God. And it's always a work of God. It is an act of our soul to believe. We, we believe. But we believe because we are an object of His grace. Jesus says in John 6, through 45, He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says in verse 65 of 
John chapter 6. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, No one can say Jesus is the Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but a gift of God. Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up the biblical truth that We're talking about here in question 31 when it says this about the work of God's Spirit. It says the Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renews our wills. He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. There's conviction of sin and misery. That's the work of the Spirit. And then the Spirit enlightens our mind, our mind with the knowledge of Christ. And then He renews our wills. And in this way, we, He fully persuades us. He persuades us that Christ is indeed the, the Messiah, the Christ, the, the Son of God. But He not just persuades us. As the catechism says, he enables us. Because before that, we were unable. But now he enables us. That we might freely receive Christ as he's offered to us. It is a gift from God. And we believe. Why? Why does God make it this way? Why must it be a gift from His hands? I think there are two reasons, and both of them are there in Ephesians 2. The first is because we have total inability. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't. Choose Christ. A dead man can't tie his shoes, let alone save his soul. Can't do anything. There is total inability. We're unable. The second reason is so God might receive maximum glory. As Paul says there in Ephesians 2, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. My salvation is for His glory, and it cannot be stained by me having any, any reason to boast. Pride should be the most foreign passion in the life of a Christian. It's so incongruous. What do I have but what has been given to me? It's those Christians who are the most humble who most understand the gospel. 
As a Christian, all I can do is say thank you. All I can do is give praise to him for a salvation that is a gift, a gift from his hands. It's a father that has revealed this to you. Because of that, and because that is true, this text gives us great hope for every single person around us. Great hope. When we tell others of Christ, which is needed, faith comes by hearing. The Spirit chooses to work through you and I, sharing the gospel with others. When we share the gospel with others, their reception of Christ, their reception of that good news, their reception of the gospel is not necessarily tied to how well I reason it out or how well I argue it, what things I bring to bear. The crowds did not believe, though they saw miracle after miracle. They had evidence after evidence. They sat under the greatest preacher the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ himself, and they still didn't believe. But Peter believes. What's the difference? Why does Peter believe? It's because God opened the eyes of Peter to see Christ in faith. And so no one is beyond hope as long as they are alive, because it is a work of God Almighty. I think of Manasseh in the Old Testament. Surely if there was ever a candidate to be without hope in this world, it was him. And yet he received the mercy of God. Now listen. If we can't say that any man or woman or child around us is without hope in this world, then we can't say that about ourselves either. If salvation was your work, then you're without hope. But because it's God's work, there is great hope. The fact that you're sitting here this morning listening to this sermon. I know there are some of you sitting there this morning that haven't darkened the door of a church for years, maybe decades. And we are glad that you're watching this morning. This is one of the great conveniences right now. You can sit at home and you can get in on a worship service and feel like you have to walk through the front door and and you can sit there and you can think through what's being preached and what's being said. It's not an accident that you're listening this morning. It's not an accident that you're sitting there. That you've listened to me for the last 30 minutes. That you've persevered. No. There's a sovereign God appointed for you even to be sitting there right now, and you're hearing the free offer of the gospel. Christ is extended to you. 
question is, is will you believe? Will you confess with Peter? Because this question is asked of you, who do you say that Jesus is? And will you confess with Peter, you are the Christ? You're the son of the living God. It's a frightful thing to keep Jesus at arm's length. I think if there is any good to come from the evil of this COVID-19, surely it is that it's reminding all of us that, that death comes. and It could come at any time. And you might not have tomorrow to make a decision for Christ. If you just take your two fingers this morning and you put them here on that artery that runs through your neck, or you put them here on your, your wrist and you feel your pulse, do that. Just take your fingers, put them here. And you can feel that boom, 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 boom. Maybe it's 70, 80. 90 beats per minute, if you're in great shape like John Anderson, 60 beats per minute. And each one of those beats is a reminder that death is coming. That between one beat and the next, death could come. It's that quick. It could all end. Life is fleeting. Your life is fleeting. Will you believe? And will you make the greater confession? Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I was thinking this weekend that our, our generation is similar to those who boarded that great ship, the Titanic, in 1912. There's 2,224 people that got on that ship. They were sold a bill of goods as they got on that ship, that they were getting ready to board a, a ship that was unsinkable. And yet, 1,500 of them would not survive. John Harper was one of the passengers on that ship. He was on his way with his daughter to Chicago from from Scotland. He lived in Glasgow, and he was a Baptist preacher there in Glasgow, and he was on his way to Chicago because the famous church there, Moody Church, had had him out there before, and he had preached a revival there, and there had been much fruit, and so they were inviting him back out to Chicago to preach another week of revival. And so on the Titanic was John Harper and his dear daughter, and everybody else was on this ship, and they were dancing, and they were delighting, and they were dining, and then all of a sudden, the ship began to go down. By all testimonies, John Harper took his daughter, and he put her in one of the raft boats that were able to get away from the sinking Titanic. And then we have account after account that John Harper would run up and down the ship of the deck, the deck ship, and he would yell, women and children, 
and the unsaved to the lifeboats. And he would run up to different people on the deck and he would say, do you know Christ? Are you saved in Christ? It was one man that rebuffed him on the deck as he asked, do you know Christ? And the man said no and kind of gave him a wave away and John Harper took off his own life vest and he handed it to him and said, you're in more need of this than I am. The ship went down, of course, and by all counts, John was in the water, in those freezing Atlantic waters, and he swam from person to person in the waters and got to all that he could, and he yelled out to each one that he swam to, are you saved? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. There was one young man that was holding on to a log in the water. John Harper, the waves carried him over to that young man and he yelled out to him, are you saved, young man? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the man answered back to Reverend Harper, no. And the waves took John Harper away. But in God's good providence, the waves brought John Harper back moments later. And so he yelled out again to the young man, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And moments later, John Harper slipped below the surface of the water into his death. Years later, there was a meeting of Titanic survivors in Canada. And a man gave a speech. And at the close of that speech, he told this story. And he said, I was the young man. And he said, when Reverend Harper yelled out that last time to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, I looked down at the watery depths beneath me. And I believed. And he closed his little speech by saying, I'm the last convert of John Harper. John Harper spent the final moments of his life asking the greater question because it is the only question when you are staring death in the face. Who do you say that Jesus is? Most of us think death is a long ways off. But my friends, it is only a heartbeat away. And this culture, where there is a crossroads of pluralism right here, is selling you a bill of goods. Your life is no more unsinkable than the Titanic was unsinkable. There are people that are so busy delighting and dancing and dining all good things. 
But dining and dancing and delighting always gives way to death. And there's one necessary question that is put before you. Who do you believe Jesus is? And the only, the only answer to that question is, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you shall live forever. you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we're thankful that you are a God of salvation. We thank you that there is truly an anointed one, the Christ, who is your very Son and has been made our Savior. I pray for all those that are listening this morning. May there not be one that turns off this live stream without crying out with those words of the Apostle Peter and crying it out from their full heart. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. We might see all of us on that last day before your throne saved by the blood of the Lamb, and singing your praise for all of eternity. Thank you for being a God of salvation. May we revel in it today. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.